SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hello there. When did you two know how good you were at singing, for sure? Like, when did you decide, I am this amount of good at singing? Never. <laughs> well, Not like, once. You, you, did you realize at some point that you think you are bad at singing? I think I'm really good at singing when I'm drunk. Like, really good. <laughs> so I love to sing. When is I'm your drunk, opinion of your but... singing waivers? It's context yeah. dependent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would never sing in front of anybody sober, and I've sung in front of hundreds of people drunk. So. I don't think I've ever seen you sing. I don't think I've I'm, seen you sing. You've either. never. You've definitely never seen me drunk enough to sing. So, Sam, <laughs> we'll to, we can work on that. Yeah, <laughs> let's get you drunk. <laughs> oh, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like that everybody knows this now. The most embarrassing thing to happen to me is that someone will learn something about me. Oh, Horrible. Uh, this is the saddest <laughs> thing. <I've, laughs> you need to tell your friends things about you. you I, I, um, 
I've always been very sort of waffly about my singing because I remember singing in the car one time and my my uh, family making, I thought I was doing great. And they made all kinds of um, noises about how it wasn't so great. And mm. that kind of set me back a little bit. And then uh, my wife is a very good singer. She's trained in everything. And uh, and at one point, when after I had been a professional musician and the lead singer of a band for several years, no. she said, you're a good singer. And I was like, <laughs> I am? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's what nice. I knew. That's what I knew for sure. I do uh, think you're a good singer. Yeah. Thanks. I, I definitely, it's context dependent whether I think I am and also whether I am. I think mine is also heavily context dependent, especially in my formative years, because I just believed what anyone said about me. So similarly, Sylvia is a trained singer and we I, we like make up ditties around the house constantly. And Aww. so I like went into this being like, I'm a horrible singer. Uh oh. But we just like make up songs. And she was like, you're actually kind of good. You sang that really nice song about weather. Yeah, well, yeah, that was it. That And that was because of Sylvia's bullying of like, I think I can do this. And she was like, you definitely can. And then she practiced with me. And she was like, you can do Nice it. bullying. Yeah, nice bullying. Like the, you know, oh, okay. spouse bullying yeah. when you need it. Constructive spousal Encouragement? bullying. Encouragement? Is yeah. that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> encouragement. Again, it can feel like a bit much sometimes, the I encouragement. That's true. <laughs> so today's episode of SciShow Tangents, as you might expect, is not at all about singing. Every week here on Tangents, <laughs> we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week. It's from me. Everything has a point at which it will freeze. And for water, that's around 32 degrees. Colder than that, and it's no longer wet. Instead, it's harder than some rocks get. Which brings up a thing about which I like to talk. If water ice is or is not a rock. And not just water ice, but all of the ices. Because we need a definition to get any preciseness. Dry ice on Mars, or methane ice on Pluto. A hunk of solid stuff that can be bigger than a Yugo. It's naturally occurring <laughs> on the surface of a planet. Is it less of a rock than just normal rocky granite? Because granite melts too, just like water does. So rocks can freeze or melt. So what's the difference, cuz? And because... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I worked... <laughs> and, and if melted rock is lava, that leaves me here to ponder. If I'm made of melted ice, then am I a lava monster? You came back a little bit with the end. The the cuz was the weak point of that poem. Because the I worked there was a long period of time where I was stuck on that line and I just I needed Sometimes to get to the you, podcast. You it yeah. was five minutes late. And I just Sometimes says just gotta power I, through I put in a I put in a cuz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked it. Thanks. I liked how embarrassed it made you when you said it, mostly. <laughs> I couldn't get through it. Anyway, the topic of the episode is 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 rock. Mm-hmm. Or rocks. And I've been wondering for some time if we can consider ice a rock, which it seems that we can. In that case, can we consider water lava? Which, why not? This is I'm sure rock. there must be a reason, though. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I don't want to hear the reason. Okay. I want to be a lava monster. The backbone of science. He's just, just not listening to reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just whatever you want. Sari, maybe you can help if you t- explain to us what are rocks. Yeah, so I think 
Ice is more of a mineral than a rock, from what I can understand. That sounds like a mineral sounds like a rock. Keep going. A mineral is similar to a rock, but from what I can find, and I did not talk to any geologists, and it's very (laughs) dicey. A lot of people have strong opinions like you, Hank, about rocks and minerals and whatnot. But it seems like there's a consensus that a mineral is an inorganic element or compound, so doesn't have carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Those three uh, make up like organic chemistry. So you're telling me coal isn't a rock? No, I don't think so. BS. Carbon containing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or not oxygen is not in there, but like, yeah, carbon containing. But minerals are inorganic compounds, so they don't contain carbon inside. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why ice would be a mineral because it has an orderly internal structure and like a homogenous chemical composition. It's made out of one thing, H2O. One type of molecule. Right. So so in that case, like a, a crystal also wouldn't be a rock. Yes. Like calcite is all calcium carbonate and it is right. considered a mineral. How much stuff do I have to put in my ice for it to become a rock? You have to put one more <laughs> thing. You have to mix ice okay. with like, oh, like a popsicle, maybe a rock because it has ice and oh, then like a flavoring okay. in it. Yeah, but but that but then it's not naturally occurring, so it's not oh. a rock. A naturally occurring popsicle, yes, which is basically just me if I froze to death. Yes. Oh, so when you're okay. dead, you can become a rock if you'd want. <laughs> no, except I'm carbon contained. Oh yeah, you are. So is that a problem? Because <laughs> I'm organic, unfortunately. You have to become inner. If your bone got okay wet, no, <laughs> your bone froze. has carbon in it, right? Yeah, we got to get away from carbon. Yeah. What I'm hearing is I'm not a rock. You're not a rock. Rocks no. are made of two or more minerals, but also still inorganic. And that's about it. Like they, it could be a solid yeah. mass. Huh. And like, at what point is it solid? Because it's all mixed together and the atoms are bonded or like an aggregate of smaller things. And as right. far as I can tell, together. a rock is a stone, is a pebble. And it just all has to do right. with size. Like we all, they all mean the same thing. So like a grain of sand is just a really small rock. Yeah. Yeah, sand is As rock. long as it's not just silicon dioxide, it's got something else in there, too. Mm-hmm. It's got to have something. That sounds like a bunch of BS to me. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I think crystals should be rocks. I think that water should be rock. Uh, I don't see why we got to be so picky about it. Why do you want all this stuff to be rocks? Just for fun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For the purpose of this podcast, we can Occam slap chop rock <laughs> so that anything... Everything's organic. a rock. Everything. That's what we do every episode, though. Yeah. Everything yeah. turns out to be everything Occam's every episode. Slap chop, everything is everything. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask questions. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Sari, do you know anything about the origin of the word rock? Much like its definition, the origin of the word rock is mysterious. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, well, the, yeah. <laughs> what happened was, actually, I know this one, is there was a man, his name was Dwayne Johnson, and mm. he was so strong and big and hard that they named all of the other rocks after him. And he was so strong and big and hard that that radiated back in time and forward in time. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is actually a time traveler. You'll see him showing up in like old <laughs> recreations, but just he's on the like side the of mountains. The pyramids. In the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of fourth dimensional. He's just throughout time mm-hmm. and like intersecting it in a different way mm-hmm. than the rest of us do. Yeah. D- did you find anything else about rocks uh, in their etymology? I could give you origin words. The, the earliest form of rock that we could find was medieval Latin or vulgar Latin, rocca, R O C C A. And back in the day, using rock 
was more for big things. Like you'd say, ah, that's a very big rock. And it would be mm-hmm. a no-no to use rock for something that you could carry in your hand. Hmm. Oh, okay. So stone, which also is a mysterious origin, because my guess is, is we walked around and we were like, what's that? A rock. What's that? A stone. What's that? A pebble. And then all of a sudden people were arguing about it and they had to draw some lines somewhere. <laughs> but a stone is just like a hand-sized rock. And now in modern day, then we've kind of separated like a rock is kind of chunky. A stone is kind of smooth. A boulder mm, is kind yeah, of okay. big. Is stone like a unit of measurement, right? It's like yeah. a weight measurement. Is that like as heavy as a hand-sized rock? supposed no, to be significantly heavier i think it's in the oh. it's in the double digits pounds yeah okay 14 14 pounds 14 pounds exactly yeah i don't know where that came because from. we're so bad at units <laughs> could have made it 15 that would have at least been like a number you could represent on yeah. hands could have made it 10 <laughs> that would have been metric no 14 no. my Not guess 14 is- point anything though because we <laughs> at least we got that together i well i bet someone had a rock Someone rich had a That was around 14 pounds. That was around 14 pounds. And it was like, oh, here's Uh my stone. I can pick it up. So it's not a rock. It's a stone. And like, I'm going to buy your goat. How heavy is your goat? I don't know. Well, my stone (laughs) weighs this much. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to weigh your goat. (laughs) This this, this is a unit of weight, not of currency. (laughs) Why are we buying things? I don't know. No, sorry. We're weighing the goat to see its value. I don't know. I could have chosen something that you would buy more about weight rather than a goat has intrinsic value. I thought that you were trading a stone for a goat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's 14 uh, pounds, okay. like the pre-euro currency of... Because pounds paper. is currency. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> They gosh. still have pounds. That They didn't get rid of those. Mm. They're naming conventions, man. It is Come very, on. very... That's why they have stone, is because they use pounds for their money. <laughs> and they're, they're like, uh-oh. Really what do we need do to now? get their act Something together. Else. Yeah. <laughs> my last rock fact is that the name Peter comes from rock. And I love that. Oh. I didn't know that because uh, I wasn't... I never studied the Bible, but comes from like Petros, like um, petrology, the study of rock. So when you name your child Peter, you're naming them rock, which I think Peter Parker, rock man. (laughs) Dwayne Peter Johnson. Well, I guess that silence at my joke about Dwayne Peter Johnson means it's time to move (laughs) on to the quiz portion of our show. This week. Well, I was going to cut it out for you, but now I got to keep it. <laughs> this week, we're doing Tangents Rocks, Truth or Fail. So, when you were a kid, you probably played with some rocks. You maybe even formed emotional bonds with them as you were carrying them home and then put them in a special pot just for the rocks that you made friends with. Maybe that was just me. Or you could have <laughs> skipped a stone across a pond. And if you think about it, these were all little rock experiments. And it turns out that there are scientists who grew up and decided to continue playing with rocks, all in the name of experimentation. So, the following are three stories about experiments scientists have done that involved rocks. But two of them are big fat lies. Tell me which one is the true one. We got a story number one. A team of archaeologists studying ancient Greek ruins were trying to decide whether marble remains had originally been part of a mountain temple that was destroyed during an ancient rock slide. So the archaeologists created their own miniature rock slide by sending chunks of marble down an inclined treadmill to see how the marble broke when it landed. 
or it could be fact number two. A behavioral economist wanted to see how people change their shopping habits based on the amount of stuff they bring into a store. So they set up an experiment where people carried a purse as they went grocery shopping. Unbeknownst to the subjects, some of these purses had a secret pocket that the economist would fill with different amounts of rocks <laughs> so they could see if the weight of the bag would impact the subject's willingness to buy more stuff. Or it could be fact number three. <laughs> when astronauts returned from the first trip to the moon, NASA wanted to make sure that they didn't bring anything dangerous back with them. So they took some of the lunar rocks that the astronauts had brought back with them and ground the rocks into dust. And then they added the moon dust to some food and fed it to cockroaches to see if the insects would survive. <laughs> wow. That's bananas. So is it story number one, an ancient rock slide treadmill? Story number two, a pocket full of rocks? Or story number three, a moon dust diet for cockroaches? Can't be any of those, right? <laughs> the rocks, the purse, the purse rocks, those rocks are so incidental to the story. I'll be disappointed if it's the purse rocks. It could have been anything. Could have been marbles, you know? Marbles. Would have been louder than rocks. I feel like if you put one big rock, it's just heavy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Marbles, you're like, what's yeah. in here? A surprise. <laughs> and I think a treadmill's not strong enough to smash up marble. Well, at an incline, maybe. So it's kind of falling down, too. It's kind of like you got to use marble. specific marble, I think. Mm -hmm. hmm. I think it's going to smash the treadmill up first. But the, the cockroach one, that one just seems like good, good science to me. <laughs> <laughs> Take some of the most valuable objects on Earth, feed it to a cockroach. Yeah. Just in case it's going to mutate them. You want to know if you're going to get mutated. That sounds absolutely baloney to me. I wouldn't feed <laughs> I wouldn't feed rocks to a cockroach. Would they even eat it? Would they be like, hmm, what's this dust? Yum, yum, yum. They put it in food. Oh, you like mush it in like you hide a pill Probably, in yeah. your cat food. Yeah, exactly. You get a pill pocket <laughs> yeah. and you put moon rocks in it. <laughs> I don't know. This is this is truly a crapshoot. I'm I'm gonna guess the marble one because it sounds weird enough that I think people drop it things all the time fun. and they break. Sam? Oh, I'm going with the moon dust one for sure. Sam's going with the moon dust. Well, here we have our true fact for you. When astronauts came back on the Apollo <gasps> 11 mission, they brought back with them around 49 pounds of lunar material. And NASA wanted to make sure it wasn't nasty stuff. So in addition to quarantining the astronauts for a period of time, NASA decided to test out the rocks to see if there was anything dangerous in them. And they did that by feeding them not just to cockroaches, but a bunch of different animals, mm. including Japanese quail, brown shrimp, mm. Oysters and German cockroaches. <laughs> NASA scientists ground the rocks into dust and then got it into the animals in a number of different ways for 28 days. Some of it, like mice and quail, they injected it into the animal and what? some was added to the water that the aquatic animals were living in and some was mixed in with the food that the insects like German cockroaches were eating. None of the animals seemed to react particularly negatively to the moon dust except for the oysters. And maybe that was just because it was their mating season. The samples did not turn up any moon microbes either, assuring the scientists that the samples were probably not dangerous. They kept doing this until Apollo 14 in 1971, after which they stopped taking moon dust and sampling animals with it. Did any of them ever lick it? Somebody's licked it, right? Oh, some geologists lick things all the time. Somebody's <laughs> licked a moon rock. Okay. Maybe they, have like, maybe they have like one special moon rock that everybody licks. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to like ruin all of them with like your lick dust. Mm. Uh-huh. 
but there's a special moon rock. It's like the Barney stone that everybody kisses. It's like that, but yeah. it's for geologists. You're allowed to lick this one. The rest. Yeah. You can look this one. Forbidden yeah. fruit. Oh, we'll go get the licking rock. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the moon rock room. Would you like to lick the licking rock? <laughs> the other two facts were based on absolutely nothing and were entirely made up. Wow. Oh. Treadmills exist and purses have rocks in them sometimes. Mm-hmm, sure. There you go. That's all you need to know. Next up, we're going to take a short break, and then it'll be time for the Fact Off. Social Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow if if there's a constant drain on the bean. bean. That... Is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond, I mean beans, and beyond subscription canceling, <laughs> Rocket Money helps you build budgets, track your spending, and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and ha- it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of bean, I guess. A, a cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription (laughs) companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot and now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop (laughs) wasting money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your (laughs) unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Sideshow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff, Uh, because it's a, you know, 
I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my first... basement. It was my <laughs> basement of my own home okay. that I was renting. The downstairs okay. of. <laughs> if you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome back, everybody. We got one point for Sam, zero points for Sari. Now, get ready for Fact Off. Our panelists have brought science facts to present in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they have presented their facts, I will judge them on which one was more mind-blowing and which one is going to make a better TikTok. And to decide who goes first, I have a trivia question. There have been many memory rocks throughout human history, but there are two in particular that loom large in our culture. One is the immense stone structure known as Stonehenge, which was built around 5,000 to 4,000 years ago with different stones hauled from miles around. The largest of these stones are called sarsens, and they can be up to 30 feet tall. The other memorable rock is, of course, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, wrestler and actor extraordinaire. So, how many Dwayne The Rock Johnsons would it take to equal the weight of one sarsen? I love this. I remember how to do long division. (laughs) (laughs) So you need long division? You just need multiplication, Sam. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, wait. Are you doing math on a piece of paper? Yeah. Well, I'd better start thinking. 50 rocks. Is it 50 rocks? Well, I don't know. Sarah's going to have to tell me her answer first. Oh, I'm going to guess 100 Dwayne Peter Johnsons. In one sarsen. The answer is (gasps) 192.31 Dwayne the Rock Johnsons per sarsen. Mm -hmm. It's probably more significant digits than is appropriate. Uh, A sarsen weighs around 25 tons and the rock weighs around 260 pounds. Big guy. Big guy. I love the .31. Chop off a leg, <laughs> stick it on there, and then that equals a sarsen. <laughs> I'll go first with this mighty victory. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> there is such pure nerdy joy in picking up a good rock and holding it in your hand and being like, wow, what a good rock. And that probably, or so I'm speculating, is how human ancestors found good rocks for tools and realized how some were better for smashing and some were better for grinding and some were better for honing a sharp edge and whatnot. The reason different rocks are good for different purposes is, of course, their chemical composition, what they're made of, and how those atoms are bonded together to give it different properties, from a soft, powdery surface that flakes off easily in something like chalk to a really strong crystalline structure in something like granite. 
Granite is an igneous rock, which means it forms from cooling magma or lava. And even though there's a lot of granite with a lot of variation, all granitoid rocks have that recognizable spotty texture because those are crystals that formed as it cooled relatively slowly under the Earth's surface, as opposed to being flung out of a volcano and cooling quickly in air. So somewhere around 61 million years ago, the Earth's crust was shifting around... Europe and Greenland, and a pretty unique kind of microgranite formed with really small crystals that were rich with alkali metals, which are the things in the first group of the periodic table like sodium. And what this means in not-so-geological terms is that these microgranites are really strong and chemically stable, so they don't erode easily. They also don't absorb water very easily at all, which prevents big cracks or chips, making it a perfect material for curling stones. Yes, <laughs> those hunks oh, of rock hey. that are polished so smooth that people toss across ice and brush brooms in front of to score points. I'm not a huge sports person, but curling is weird and fun to watch because so much of it is about mm-hmm. precise physics and friction and like, what a bizarre concept. So in the olden days, I think curling rules were a little looser and people would just hurl rocks of different shapes and sizes across ice with less care if those rocks cracked or if the ice got scuffed. But nowadays, all Olympic curling stones are standardized and specifically, they're made of a couple types of microgranite from this one tiny island near Scotland called Ailsa Ooh. Craig because the rock is so perfect for what the athletes put it through. So I guess when you're setting up a tent, you just grab a random rock and smash in the stake. But when you're an ice athlete, you need the fanciest granite on the planet to do your sport well or fairly. Could we run out of curling stones someday? <laughs> we could, right? Yeah we, yeah, we have to make sure that the sport doesn't get too popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think they have limits on how much can be mined at a time. So I think they had a big wow. batch that was mined around the early 2000s that was supposed to last until 2020. And then they mined another batch that is supposed to last like another decade or so. So they are mm. very carefully monitoring this microgranite. But the thing is, you don't like you don't like go through them, right? You don't like use one up. Mm-hmm. You have to be doing it real wrong, I think. Yeah. That's why they're so it's so good because... If you used other kinds of granite, then your stones might wear down or ice might, uh, water might seep in and turn into ice and like chip off pieces. But this is the good stuff. Right. A generational curling stone. <laughs> you don't get buried with one of these. You pass <laughs> it down. <laughs> all right. Weird. Not what I was expecting at all. Sam. The popular depiction of bees in media, from Winnie the Pooh to the bee movie, is that they're friendly little fellows who live in big hives with their family and do teamwork. But the reality is that most bees are solitary. They do not do teamwork, and they do not live in big hives with anyone. Solitary bees mostly live in holes in the ground, but many of them also drill holes into things or find naturally occurring cracks to live in and lay their eggs in. Commonly known as mason bees, one particular type, typically burrow into things like wood, which is, you know... Hard, but like soft at the same time. Sure. Something you could see a bee going Uh really chewing into. (laughs) Or they they do it in clay as well. Also soft enough. You could see a bee doing that. Uh Uh, But this episode, as you may remember, is about rocks. In 2015, a doctoral student named Michael Orr was looking through rock samples and discovered something weird. He found sandstone samples that were full of holes drilled by mason bees and it turned out that a bee scientist named frank parker had collected the rock samples and written research on these rock dwelling bees in the 70s but had never published the work 
And so what's so cool about that is that nobody since then had ever observed bees drilling into rock that anybody knew of. It was just this paper hidden away somewhere. So ore, which is a great rock-related name, by the way, for this episode, (laughs) retraced Parker's steps, uh, which took him to the San Rafael Desert in Utah, and he found the exact same rocks that Parker was writing about. And lo and behold, there were still mason bees living in those exact same rock holes that there were living there in the 70s. So after that, several more nests of the same bee species were found in Utah, Nevada, California, and Nevada, I wrote twice. So maybe somewhere else, who knows? (laughs) Or he went back to Nevada and said, hey, I found some more. The bees were dubbed Anthrophora Pueblo, I assume in reference to the cliff face shelters built by some of the Puebloan people of Southwest North America. So you might think that this new bee species has some pretty specialized physical traits to allow them to chomp into rocks, sure. like the strongest of mandibles. Mm-hmm. But I think they pretty much just have the regular mandibles of any bee. And older bees have been observed with very worn out mandibles from biting rocks. But they are able to use a pretty cool tool to help them wear the rocks down. The bees suck up water and spit it on the sandstone to help dissolve the carbonate crystal that binds the sand together. So that makes another bee first. The first time bees have been observed using water to help them build nests. Whoa. But why rocks, you may ask? Uh, Well, rocks are really good at being hard which protects the bees and their babies from weather. But their rock homes also provide protection from a couple of nasty interlopers. One is all the bacteria and stuff that can grow in organic nesting material and hurt their babies. And the other is parasitic beetle larvae that can end up in nests. And in softer mason bee nests, the larvae can infiltrate multiple cells and infect multiple babies. But these much more literally mason bees cover mm-hmm. up holes of infected bee babies with basically concrete. They can just like slather over goopy sandstone that hardens into something that's too hard for the larva to burrow their way out of. So there's less to mate and they can't get into other holes. So they lose that one egg, but the whole nest is safe. And their mandibles get worn down. They're like, how do they do it? Are they special? And it's like, no, look, they got little (laughs) nubs left after all the rock chewing that they've done. (laughs) Yeah, but it was worth it. So what you're telling me is now I have to pick between bees chewing through rocks and whatever Sari told me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and the special Scottish island that is the only place to make good curling stones, at least according to the people who run the special Scottish island. Yes, to the Olympic Committee. So the Olympic Committee requires them to come from this island? Yes, there's other huh. like micro granite, like a couple other places, but they are yeah. much, much less used, I think. Sam, I think you're the winner of the episode. It was hard. That's that's a difficult choice, but you got the point (laughs) in the first one, so it puts you over the edge. Mm -hmm. Turns out rocks are fun. I like rocks. I can wrap my head around rocks. There's (laughs) plenty of them. And now that means it's time to ask the science couch where we've got some listener questions for our virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. And Emmy Rose on Discord and also at Candy Cane Reads asked... Do geologists really lick rocks? Can you lick bones to tell them apart from rocks? And the answer to that question is yes and yes. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Do you know why? Hey! Have you licked bones (laughs) and rocks? I have. And I, I, I I do detect the difference. Though I feel like there has to be some situations in which like some rocks... Probably are pretty similar to bones. So this feels different on your tongue. Yeah, because bones are like have more pores, and so your like tongue kind of sticks to it more. Yeah, and by bone you mean fossils? Fossilized bone. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. When a geologist looks a rock for science, (laughs) it's just a little bit. It's just like 
another metric by which you can tell what you're looking at. Sort of like you look at the color or you look at the texture or you look like what intrusions are in there or what shape it is. Mm -hmm. So I think when people think licking rocks, they think like a lot of licking. It's not very much. Like an ice cream cone or something. Not yeah, like that. Not though. an ice cream cone. And like Hank mentioned, fossilized bone can be uh, distinguished from rock, even though they might look similar. Like that's where you'd lick it is like, oh, I'm not sure if this is a fossil or not because of the pores. And as far as like the reason why, I think it's similar to why tape is sticky, where it's like tape has a, a watery adhesive and that seeps into the pores and then you can't pull it away as easily. And so I assume that's what's mm. happening with your tongue in the porous bone. Or a porous rock. Like porous rocks will also be a little bit stickier. And there are ways, like you could tell a slightly porous rock or a dry and airy rock from a denser rock based on licking as well. And it's like one thing that can contribute to a rock's positive identity. The other thing is that we don't really have great chemo receptors on the outside of our body. Like you can't really smell to the same degree as you can do other things yeah. and like you can touch, but like a really, like their most chemical sensitive parts of our body is like our tongue. And so you can detect small bits of flavor or like different trace amounts of different chemicals. And so like this is really clear if you're working with halite, which is sodium chloride, which I guess is a mineral, but looks a lot like quartz. And especially if you're like more of an amateur, just like white and clear. And if you lick it, it'll taste salty as opposed to nothing. This is sort of coming back to just the feeling that the tongue is exceptionally good at stuff. Mm -hmm. And it is a thing that we do not give enough credit to nor think enough about how amazing it is. Though maybe it's a little upsetting to think about how amazing it is. Because it is kind of, it's it is kind of gross to have a tentacle in your face <laughs> that is always wet. So you said you kept uh, saying it was one of the ways you tell rock stuff. Is it like one of the main ways? Is it like the biggest way? <laughs> I would say no? it's, okay. it's a last resort kind of thing. Oh, uh, that's too bad. <laughs> so a lot of the ways that you can ID specimens, I don't know, I... I feel like our color is very ob obvious, but then you try and identify like whether there are crystal chunks in it or like what what it's made of. Because if a rock is made of multiple minerals, you try and see what it's composed of. You can break it down into like sedimentary, igneous, or metamorphic, where sedimentary is like squished sand together, igneous is volcanic, and then metamorphic is like it formed and then got squished and heated up a lot and changed because of that. So yeah, I think there are a lot of other more prominent ways to detect rocks. And I don't think you'll be reading any scientific papers where people identified something by lick. But speaking of the tongue being a, a wet tentacle, another way to examine rocks is wettability, which is how water <laughs> adheres to the surface or sometimes like getting a rock wet, like in the way of dunking your hand with a river rock underwater and then bringing it up, you can see things that you wouldn't be able to see when it's dry. Okay. Just, I mean, just spit on it. You got, you don't have to put the tongue on to it. There's ways mm -hmm. to get liquid out of your body and onto something else <laughs> well, without direct application. Yeah. I, I cited some like Twitter threads and blogs because I had to find scientists talking about this, but one of them was like, you know, you can just lick your finger and then touch it to the rock. You don't got to make tongue contact with the rock if you don't want to. 
Nobody's having any fun out there. Yeah, and look, what's on the rock that's going to be dangerous? Unless the rock itself is made out of poison, which it could be. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the other thing. You could lick a poisonous rock and you might be like uh, a soluble a copper poisoned. sulfate and it'll taste a little sweet, but it'll be like, that's mm. poison or arsenic. All right. So what you're saying is if I don't know what I'm doing, I shouldn't go around licking every rock. Yes, correct. Okay, great. That's Don't lick that's, things. That's what I'm taking away. Yeah. <laughs> Don't like things you don't know things about, I guess. (laughs) That goes for rocks and it goes for people. If you want to ask the Science Couch your question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you can join the SciShowTangents Patreon and ask us on Discord. Thank you to at MXDemoUnicorn, Falafi, and everybody else who asked uh, your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. First, you can go to patreon.com slash scishowtangents, where you can become a patron and get access to things like our newsletter and our bonus episodes. Second, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That's helpful, and it helps us know what you like about what we do. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell tell people people about about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes along with Seth Glicksman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Paolo Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistants are Devoki Chakravarty and Emma Douster. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Hank Green. And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. Shipworms aren't worms as long and gooey as they look. They're actually a bivalve like a clam with two small shells surrounding their mouth. And they get their name because they grind up rotting wood and dig out a tunnel to live in, just like the bees, while eating a woody snack (laughs) along the way. In 2019, researchers announced the discovery of a new kind of shipworm in a river in the Philippines, one whose shell mouth is tough enough to dig into hard limestone rocks, just like the bees. It doesn't seem like they're getting (laughs) any nutrients from the limestone they eat, but because what goes in must come out, the limestone goes straight out their butts because they excrete a mineralized coating Mm. that lines their home tunnel and poop out lots of sand that coats the bottom of the river. Wow. Wow. Well, what are they eating then? Uh, You know, all the other stuff. Okay. Just grime that floats by? Yeah, probably. In trying to find this butt fact, I Googled rock eating, and then it auto-completed to rock eating pancakes. And so, like, my (laughs) first thought was, that's weird. Like, what are pancakes that eat rocks? Is this a meme I haven't known about? It's, it's, it's Wayne the Rock Johnson eating pancakes. Yeah. It's just a bunch of pictures He's of him a eating lot of pancakes. pancakes. That's, a, that's a man who can take yeah. down a, a few pancakes. <laughs>